Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and this week we are continuing our sermon series through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, and today we will be covering one of the most confusing and controversial passages in the Bible. In fact, the the next few chapters are pretty difficult to interpret. In full disclosure, I started preparing this sermon six weeks ago. That doesn't mean it'll be six times better. It just means that, to be completely honest, this is my most coherent attempt at interpreting this passage as of August 12th, 2018. I've put in the work, and I still do not understand completely. Like many things, the, the more you get to know the Bible, the more you realize how little you actually know. And so, like with every passage, we need to approach this text with humility and a bit of trepidation. Sometimes the Bible offends us. I know the feeling. Sometimes I wish the Bible had said something differently or said something different altogether. And yet I submit to the Bible as the very word of God. And I think that tension is okay. Why? Well, because I'm a limited, fallible man. And I'm inescapably immersed within my own context. I live in the United States of America in the 21st century. I don't know everything, and I don't get everything right. And so if an all-knowing God were to inspire a word to me, I should expect to be challenged and perhaps even offended. A Bible that cannot offend is not a Bible worth reading. If God never tells me I'm wrong, I've probably made him in my own image. So if this is truly God's word, we should expect some friction. But I don't think this passage will be controversial for the reasons you might expect. The complexity of this text is going to require that we discuss some technical things. Ideally, we wouldn't have to go into this level of detail, but in this case, the tiniest details actually matter a great deal as we are attempting to draw out Paul's primary message. So throughout the sermon, I will be highlighting a few application points for us. There will be a total of three. And then towards the end of the sermon, we'll circle back and address those again. Sound good? All right. Here's a summary of how I think many people read 1 Corinthians. All right. Paul starts out addressing division and quarreling and partisanship in the church. It's not good. He discusses true wisdom. True wisdom looks like laying down your life for others. It looks like foolishness and weakness but it's the power of God. He says church leaders are nothing but servants. They plant and water, but only God can give growth, and this produces humility. In fact, church leaders are called to stand at the back of the line and to put the interests of others well out in front, and the rest of the church is called to follow that example because it's the example of Jesus. Paul calls us to holiness Humility, sincerity, and truth. Paul calls us to exercise judgment and work to settle conflict in accordance with the gospel. He calls us to glorify God with our bodies, to flee sexual immorality, in part because sexual immorality seeks to take and we are called to give, in part because these are the bodies that God will resurrect on the last day. 
and so we use them for holy purposes. Paul dignifies marriage. Paul dignifies singleness. Paul calls all of us to a life of contentment. Paul demonstrates that freedom is for love. That although we are free and privileged in Christ, we must stand ready to set aside our freedoms and privileges for the sake of others. Life in the kingdom must be others-oriented. I would, I, I would say others-promoting. And now, Paul takes a moment to put the women in their place. Does that make any sense to you? Paul calls us to humility. He calls us to follow Jesus. Jesus, who made himself lower than everybody. That's the type of humility you're called to. Make yourself lower than everybody. And so how could Paul then turn around in chapter 11 and elevate one half of the church above the other? It doesn't make sense. That's because it's a false reading of this passage. I think it's a false reading built upon a few false presuppositions. So let's talk about our presuppositions. Let's talk about the assumptions we tend to bring into our reading of these verses. To do this, we need to understand some of what was going on culturally in Corinth. In the Greco-Roman world, you were what you wore. You were what you wore. This is somewhat true in our society, too. It's illegal to impersonate a police officer or a member of the armed forces. Judges, pilots, doctors, sometimes clergy can be easily identified by what they wear. And, and often we need this to be the case. If a man in a mask breaks down your front door with an axe, it matters a great deal what he's wearing. He's either a firefighter or you need to start running, right? But in the Greco-Roman world, these things were deeply ingrained in their society. You were what you wore. What you wore told us what you were. So, what did a head covering indicate? Well, here in the modern West, we tend to view head coverings as a symbol of the oppression and subjugation of women. But in ancient Corinth, head coverings were used to classify women according to their socioeconomic rank and their marital status. Head coverings signaled to men which women were under male protection and which women were fair game. For a woman to walk around in public with her head covered signified honor, status, dignity, modesty, and security. But few women were permitted to wear such head coverings. Historical research indicates that slave women, poor women, single women, adulteresses, and prostitutes were prohibited by law from covering their heads. Women with uncovered heads were considered sexually available. Their uncovered head was a disgrace to them. Why? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, a woman's hair was considered to be the chief element of her beauty. Thus, for a woman to cover her hair was an act of honor and modesty. Exposed female hair was deeply erotic. It was generally understood that men were rendered powerless to resist a woman with her hair down. In fact, under Roman law, 
men were not held liable for making advances toward married women who declined to wear a head covering. Or in other words, if a respectable woman failed to dress as a respectable woman, men were legally permitted to accost her. In our culture, if a married woman desires for the public to regard her as a married woman, she will wear a ring on her left ring finger. Without that ring, she tells the public that she is in some sense available. Now, that does not mean men are permitted to be creeps, but it's a similar concept. So, as we step into this passage, here is one key thing to remember. Most women would have wanted a head covering. Most women would have wanted a head covering. It was a symbol of honor and status, not necessarily a symbol of subjugation. So we can't say for sure why some of the women in Corinth were removing their head coverings. Perhaps they were just taking the tradition delivered them to them by Paul too far. Or perhaps they were actually being pressured to remove their head coverings by the men, by those in church leadership. We don't know. Now let me say one more thing. Here at Sojourn, we use a Bible translation called the English Standard Version, the ESV. But we also realize that different translations have different strengths, and that all translations are ultimately subject to the original Hebrew or Greek. And so this week, I'm reading from a different translation, and here's why. I think Paul is addressing all the women in the church, but the ESV limits his audience to the married women only. Thus, the ESV uses the word wife, and I would prefer that they use the word woman. Why is this even an issue? Well, because the original Greek word could mean wife, or it could mean woman. It was flexible. And that gives you a little window into how difficult translating the Bible can be. Sometimes you actually have to take an interpretive stance in order to decide which word to use. Okay, so we'll be reading from the New King James Version. Let's read verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. What were the traditions Paul had delivered to the church in Corinth? I'm not totally sure. But I believe Paul is referring to the practice of having women praying and prophesying within the corporate assembly. Or perhaps more broadly, he is referring to a particular liturgy, the order of service that he taught the Corinthians to follow. Regardless, the women appear to have had a speaking role, and Paul commends this. He commends the Corinthians for giving a platform to both male and female church members within corporate worship. But he offers a correction to the exact manner in which they were practicing these things. Verses 3 to 6. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So, while Paul's theological reasoning is notoriously unclear, his directive is actually very clear. 
Corinthian women should cover their heads when they pray or prophesy in corporate worship. Corinthian men should not. Again, the question is why? We'll do our best to answer that question in a bit. So, I've made a case that head coverings were considered a good thing. I've made a case against the view that head coverings were a symbol of oppression and subjugation. But even if that weren't true, verse 3 will not permit us to see women as lesser. Paul roots his argument in the Trinity. The head of Christ is God. In other words, male-female relationships are patterned after Trinitarian relationships. In Philippians 2, Paul says that Christ is equal with God. But here, Paul says that God is the head of Christ. And so according to the Bible, it's possible to have a head with whom you are equal. Our society tends to reject this outright. And I know a lot of us struggle to reconcile the idea of headship with gender equality. I don't think Paul is making a point about headship in this, in this chapter. And so we're not going to go there. But, but I am hoping the Bible's view of women will help to ease that tension a bit, especially as we come to verses 7, 8, and 9. I, I can't wait to talk about those verses. For now, let's consider what Paul might actually have in view here. This is what I find remarkable about Paul's instruction. He wants all women to cover their heads while praying or prophesying, even those who are not allowed to cover their heads according to Roman law and cultural norms. It would, it would help to picture Corinth as the Las Vegas of the ancient world, okay? Rich and poor, powerful and weak, dignified and disgraced, all within one city, and presumably all within one church. Now, add to that the idea that you were what you wore. And all of a sudden, we start reading Paul's instruction differently. His directive that all women should cover their heads would have equalized social relationships within the community. Paul would have been ascribing respect, honor, dignity, and at least the semblance of purity for women within the church who were denied those things by the surrounding culture. Paul's instruction would have made a slave girl into an honorary matriarch in Christ. You could have looked out at the worshiping congregation and not been able to distinguish between rich and poor, powerful and weak, dignified and disgraced. All would be one. And so I think Paul was being protective, not chauvinistic. And when we frame it this way, the question becomes, how should we act and dress in corporate worship when the assembly includes rich and poor, powerful and weak, dignified and disgraced? And that's application number one. In corporate worship, we should all dress with regard for others. In corporate worship, we should all dress with regard for others. Look back at verses 5 and 6. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, 
Let it be covered. I think Paul is referring to a common form of punishment for women caught in adultery. The custom was for women convicted of adultery to have their heads shaved. Not only that, but they were then pro uh, prohibited from wearing a head covering. Thus, for a respectable woman to remove her head covering in public was shameful. She might as well cut her hair short because she has brought shame upon herself and her family, especially her husband. So, if Paul were looking to equalize social relationships, it would make no sense for all of the women to remove their head coverings. Paul would be advocating for indecency in the name of equality. Paul encourages all the women to do the honorable thing. Paul encourages all of the women to do the honorable thing. Let's take another look at Paul's reasoning, verses 7 to 12. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Now, there's a lot going on here. We'll take it bit by bit. In verses 7 and 9, Paul says that woman is the glory of man, and that woman was created for man. Now, we may be tempted to read it this way. Man, he's the image and glory of God. Woman, she's just the glory of man. Wrong. Wrong. The point here is that woman is man glorified. Woman is man 2.0. Adam was the first generation iPhone. Eve was the iPhone X. Woman is more glorious than man. Women and, me, women and men are equal in terms of value, but they are not equal in terms of glory. Women are more glorious. Would, would anyone care to disagree with that? Does, can it get an amen or a whoop or something? I, <laughs> There you go. One. <laughs> the Bible does not teach that man is a dollar and woman is a quarter. The Bible teaches that man is a dollar bill and woman is a silver dollar. They are equal in value, but they are not equal in glory. Women are more glorious. The dollar bill is common and the silver dollar is special. We could say this another way. In the Bible, the most glorious things come last. The Garden of Eden was glorious, but its glory will be surpassed by the New Jerusalem. The stars and seas and plants and animals were glorious, but man was the crown of creation. Man is glorious, but man's glory was surpassed by woman. Man was the crown of creation, but woman was the crown of that crown. And so Paul is not saying that women depend upon men for glory. He's saying the opposite. He's saying men should look to women as their glory. 
women are humanity's better half. Man was created prior to woman, but that doesn't mean men are more valuable than women. If being created first makes you more valuable, then plants are more valuable than human beings. And so to use the language of verses 7 and 8, the man is the head, and the woman is the hair that makes that head glorious. Woman proceeds from man as hair proceeds from the head. Woman is the glory of man as her hair is the glory of her own head. So for a woman to have her hair down in worship would simply be far too much glory for that setting. And this line of reasoning may sound strange to us, but it's consistent with ancient Jewish thought. To use the language of verse 3, Christ proceeds from God and brings glory to God. Man proceeds from Christ and brings glory to Christ. Woman proceeds from man, brings glory to man. Thus, men should not seek to glorify their own heads because men are called to be the head, not the hair. It's reserved for women to be the glorious ones. So what is Paul saying? Application number two. In corporate worship, we should be able to distinguish between men and women. In corporate worship, we should be able to distinguish between men and women. And this is where I think Paul begins to offend 21st century Americans. Because despite what our culture says about gender, men and women are different. The sexes are not interchangeable. Why does this matter to Paul? Well, why would it matter within the Trinity? After all, Paul invites us to make that connection, right? So what would be lost if we stopped distinguishing between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? We would lose the mutuality, reciprocity, and others-oriented love and submission that exist within God. When we say that God desires to glorify himself, we mean that the persons of the Trinity are looking to glorify one another, not themselves. Because God is three in one, he can love and glorify himself without being self-centered. So if we stop distinguishing between men and women, we lose the mutuality, reciprocity, and others-oriented love and submission that should exist within the church. There's no mutuality if we're all the same. If we're all the same, the church becomes less glorious. We see this idea of mutuality again in verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. All things are from God. Remember that. Now, before we move on, let's take a closer look at verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. All right, this is a very difficult verse to interpret for three primary reasons. Number one, as discussed, we don't know whether this is addressed to all women broadly or to wives in particular. Number two, 
the original Greek does not actually say symbol of authority. It just says authority. For this reason, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. Number three, the phrase, because of the angels, comes out of nowhere. (laughs) When Bible translators add the phrase, symbol of, symbol of authority, they reveal their interpretation of the passage. They are interpreting as they translate. And again, that's okay. You have to make those sorts of decisions because ancient Greek does not translate into modern English all that smoothly. But I think we could just as easily read verse 10 as Paul giving authority to the women to decide what to wear on their own heads. Paul wants them to wear head coverings, but even more than that, he wants them to exercise wisdom, good judgment, and others-oriented love. That's why he says in verse 13, judge among yourselves. The women had a degree of freedom in this matter, but remember, Paul just spent three chapters teaching us how to use our freedom. Don't eat food that causes others to stumble. Don't wear clothing that causes others to stumble. After all, as Paul says in in chapter 6, we will judge the angels. If you can't decide how to dress appropriately for corporate worship, how are you going to judge the angels? Thus, each woman ought to judge for herself because of the angels. Now, having said that, I should reiterate, I don't actually know what this verse means. (laughs) That's just one possible interpretation. Let's read verses 13 to 16. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. As a reminder, the sort of prayer here is public prayer in the context of corporate worship. Though it's not entirely clear what this would have looked like, what this praying or prophesying would have looked like in Corinth. Here at Sojourn, we follow the ancient practice of praying corporate prayers together in unison. Sometimes we speak these prayers, sometimes we sing these prayers, but throughout our liturgy, you you will hear both male and female voices. Application number three. In corporate worship, we should hear female voices. Otherwise, we rob our worship of glory. Anything short of hearing female voices in corporate worship is a departure from the traditions delivered to the early church by the apostles. Now, of course, this application remains subject to what the Bible says elsewhere about the roles of men and women in worship. But but nevertheless... 1 Corinthians 11 presents a clear challenge for us. Because throughout church history, the church has struggled to give adequate expression to the practice Paul was praising. We have not always viewed woman as the glory of man. We have not always welcomed and valued her voice. More on that in a bit. One last thought on these verses before we move on. 
Paul says that women should have long hair and men should not. There's really no sense in striking up a conversation about how short is too short for women and how long is too long for men. That conversation would be beside the point. Remember the context. Paul is talking about hair as a means of glorification, and Paul is talking about gender distinctions within corporate worship. And so the principle is this. Men should not seek to glorify themselves or to beautify themselves as women do, especially on Sunday mornings. When men seek to glorify themselves, they prevent women from being what God created them to be, glorifiers. Picture, picture a wedding ceremony. All right? We don't expect there to be a great deal of pageantry when the groom enters the room. Sometimes you don't even notice it. His, his, his only job is to stand up there and try not to pass out. But we do expect a great deal of pageantry when the bride enters the room. The doors swing open, the music reaches a crescendo, everyone stands in honor of this woman, the glory of her man. It would not be right for the groom to steal the show. We all know that's true. Thus, when men seek to glorify themselves, this amounts to a rejection of women as their more glorious counterparts. So let's review our three points of application. Number one, in corporate worship, we should all dress with regard for others. When we gather together as a church, our manner of dress should not offend others. It should not bring shame upon others. It should not even be the cause of misunderstanding. We should take care not to detract or distract from the task we all share in ushering one another into the presence of God. That's your job. Similarly, corporate worship is not the time or place to glorify yourself. Corporate worship is not the time or place to show off your beauty especially not in a way that advertises your availability. We're here to glorify God. We're here to glorify God, not to draw attention away from God to ourselves. And so the call is to exercise modesty and good judgment. Number two, in corporate worship, we should be able to distinguish between men and women. Men and women are different. That's that statement is politically incorrect. It's not how enlightened people talk these days, but it's a scientific fact. There are two genders, and they are not interchangeable. And in corporate worship, men are still men, and women are still women. We do not worship as neutered individuals. And so we must not blur the line between genders or even brush aside cultural expressions of gender. Why? Because God made us male and female. From the very beginning, he desired for humanity to bear his image before the rest of creation. And so the triune God, distinct persons, yet one God, built gender distinction into humanity. And we don't have the authority to alter that. 
we are still accountable to God's will for gender as established in the order of creation. Plus, corporate worship sets the tone and trajectory for Christian living. Worship is our blueprint for life. And so we should worship according to God's design. We should worship as men and women with mutuality, reciprocity, others-oriented love and submission. Number three, in corporate worship, we should hear female voices. Otherwise, we rob our worship of glory. The Corinthians were giving women a platform to pray and prophesy and lead worship. And Paul commends them for it. So, according to Paul's tradition, women should have a platformed visible role in corporate worship. It is not good that the man should be alone, Genesis 2 says. It is not good that the man should worship alone, 1 Corinthians 11 says. I think you can make the argument that the place of women within the church was elevated and established with the coming of the new covenant. Women in the early Christian communities enjoyed more status and influence than ever before. There was something about early Christianity that was very attractive to women. Since then, Christians have, ha have had a hard time helping women to find their place within the church and within society at large. Now, I confess, I don't have an answer here. I don't know of a quick fix. But, rather than opposing radical feminism, perhaps conservative Christians should begin by glorifying women. I'm convinced that Christianity has something even better to say about gender equality. So let's figure out how to say that. I know I just punted that application, but it's our job, collectively. <laughs> In summary, I believe Paul's primary point is that we should be preserving the distinction between men and women when we gather together for corporate worship. When Paul argues from the order of creation... He is saying, gender still matters. Thus, here's what you've been waiting for. Thus, Paul's point is not that women should be wearing head coverings regardless of the culture in which they live. Rather, his point is that when preserving the distinction between men and women, cultural expressions of gender are highly relevant. Because we worship a triune God, the church can be united as one even as we celebrate the things that make us different. In fact, the reciprocal roles of men and women are, are in a sense built into the gospel itself. Or in other words, both men and women are invited to look to Christ as their example. Men look to Christ as their example. He spoke boldly. He ministered gently. He loved genuinely. He labored diligently. He led winsomely. He was a protector and a provider. He stood ready to serve and sacrifice when called upon, to submit his own interests to the interests of his bride. Jesus died to see his bride glorified. 
he laid down his life so that the church, which proceeds from his own body, which is his body, might be beautiful and glorious. Women also looked to Christ as their example. Though he was glorious, he did not seek to glorify himself. Rather, he submitted himself to the will of his heavenly Father. And so as to glorify his heavenly Father. He was meek, but his meekness was not to be misunderstood as weakness. He was powerful precisely because he was humble. He loved and served and nurtured and built up those around him, and therefore he was beautiful and attractive despite his outward appearance. Now listen. This does not mean that men are exempted from changing diapers. This does not mean that women are prohibited from working full-time jobs. This is less about our activities and more about our posture toward one another and toward the God who made us just how he wants us. Verse 12, all things are from God. All things are from God. Your gender is a gift to you from God himself. Are you exercising that gift? Are you living into that gift? Is the church benefiting from that gift? Let's pray that it would be so. And if you still have questions about this passage, you can join my new club. Um, I'd be happy to discuss further. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult passage, but it's an opportunity for humility and charity toward one another. And so I ask, we ask, Father, that you would give us wisdom and discernment. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take whatever is true and lovely and cement it into our hearts, cement it into our practice. Thank you, Jesus, for your loving and sacrificial example. May we learn from your others-oriented humility. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.